0: All right, so we are in week three of this building block, baptized in his name, the meaning and the practice of baptism. We're looking at the meaning and the practice of baptism. Last week, we looked at early church history beginning with the document called the Didache, and we went right up to the Reformation in 1547 looking at the Council of Trent and what they said about baptism. Anyone have any recollection about what the Council of Trent said about baptism? You don't need to quote it. Just any, any recollection about what the Council of Trent said about baptism? Any memory? Any guesses? What did it say about infants being Baptized? Did it have a position on infant baptism? It did have a position on infant baptism. Yep. That's the deduction back, going on back there. I don't know if this was go ahead. One, but it was if, there, if the infant is in danger of dying, go ahead and do it. But otherwise, yeah. Some historians believe one of the first reasons they might have started to baptize babies was because they were afraid they were going to die. So they thought they could come, somehow bring them into the covenant before they died. Yeah. What happened, according to the Council of Trent, when you baptized an infant? What happened to that infant? Was it something merely external, or did something happen to that baby? Cal. Yeah, we have original sin. That's the problem. And and say it again. Original sin was taken care of. Yeah. Actual regeneration happened. Infants can have faith, actually, according to the Council of Trent. Uh, We don't have to say much about that to know if you're a member of our church, that's not what we believe, but we're going to be working out the rest of the building block, what do we actually mean? And we're going to see some of those things today get worked out in our church's church history. So you see week three is from the Reformation to Millwood, to our church. This is a mercifully short look at some very high mountaintop points between the Reformation, and Millwood Baptist Church. So this is, uh, I think, the closest that we can get right now in my historical efforts to see where do our roots connect back to the Reformation as Millwood Baptist Church. Go ahead and go to page two. A very helpful book is Thomas Kidd's Baptists in America. Very helpful book about the history of Baptists in America if you're interested Uh, It's a wonderful, very easy to read, very helpful uh, and enlightening. Thomas Kidd said, Radical Puritanism produced the first Baptists in America. And while many historians have identified liberty of conscience as these Baptists' chief concern, liberty of conscience served a higher purpose, the right to practice believers' Baptism. Baptist in America, where do we come from? The historical chain goes back to Puritans in Reformation England. In England. So we see page two there, first hints of Baptist in the England Reformation. Puritans in the English Reformation. This is from Thomas Kidd. Hints of a Baptist movement existed. In 16th century England mostly among the English separatists. Anybody know what the word separatists is referring to historically? What is a separatist in 1500s in England? Separating from the Catholic Church? Separating from the Catholic Church? Uh, This is even within those people who are separating from the Catholic Church. Anybody else? So it's true, but a little bit more tight than that. Separating from the Church of England. Separating from the Church of England. Yeah, there was two Puritan views. One of them was, let's try to reform the Church of England, which had gone infant baptism and paedo uh, and Presbyterian. Let's try to reform the church. Separatists said it's, it's a lost cause. We need to go start our own churches. Let's go out into the fields and start gathering there on Sundays we need to separate from the Church of England because it is corrupt and it is irredeemable. So the First Baptists were among English separatists, members of radical branch of Puritanism. The Puritans believed that they should reform or purify the Church of England from within, but the separatists believed the Church of England was corrupt beyond redemption. True believers should separate from it, they warned. By the early 17th century, some radical separatists concluded that complete purity in the Church demanded a rejection of infant baptism. That's an important sentence. Real purity in the church demanded a rejection of infant baptism. Infant baptism reflected an inclusive geographic view of church membership. So if you were in England, if you were going to be part of a church, you did not go church shopping. That idea could not be more foreign to England in the 1500s. Where was your church? Your church was the 7827 church. You're a member of the church in your zip code because you got baptized as an infant there, and that's where you live. That's your church, and you have a pastor there. Infant baptism reflected an inclusive geographic view of church membership that both Roman Catholics and Anglicans embraced, introducing the children of church families, Christian families, into the church as, quote, quasi-members. But what if those children never experienced conversion? The practice necessarily brought into the church people who, according to the Calvinist view of Puritans and Separatists, were not members of the elect. So we have here at infant baptism people who are being counted as the church, but they were never converted. They never actually expressed faith in Christ. Never actually put their faith in Christ at all. They were not members of the elect, the chosen people of God. Baptists sought to clear up this confusion and foster a pure church membership by baptizing only those who had actually experienced conversion. Baptist movement began by saying, let's do our best to only baptize people who we see evidence of actually having been converted by the Holy Spirit. That's where the Baptistic movement began. That gets us to 1540. We see Puritans in England. John Hooper's conversion to Protestantism came around 1540, one of the first one of the earliest Puritans. When he got a hold of two treatises written by Swiss Protestants, Hooper would be one of the first casualties of the Puritan participation in the Reformation. He was burned at the stake in front of a crowd of 7,000 people when Queen, that's Bloody Mary, sought to squelch out any Reformation roots in England. At least 280 Protestants of all ranks and stations of all life, including 56 women, chose the flames above Catholicism. This led to Puritans being scattered to Switzerland, Holland, and Germany. Uh... Marked it here, and I would highly recommend this book called *Hot Protestants: A History of Puritanism in England and America*. Uh, I've just been reading this uh, this summer, and it's uh, it's actually wonderful. It's easy to read as well. Uh, I think you would enjoy it. So we see here from the in 1540, John Hooper, one of the earliest Puritans, um, was burned at the stake uh, for the things that we now hold. Uh, So easily. 1608, Puritans in Holland. Puritans in Holland. So we see that initial dispersion led some Puritans to move to Holland. You see that quote from John Smith, "...only Christian believers could receive true baptism, and only authentic Christian churches could offer true baptism." This is the kind of stuff that will get you killed in 1500s England. Only Christian believers could receive a true baptism, and only authentic Christian churches could offer true baptism. A little bit about the Puritans in Holland. The first English Baptist church in Holland was founded by separatist John Smith, who was educated in Cambridge. In 1600, Smith began serving as priest of the church in England in Lincoln, northeast England. Two years later, Smith was removed from his pastorate for, quote, undue teaching of matters of religion, his teachings about baptism, and even his preaching for that matter. Uh, Smith became a minister of a separatist congregation. His separatists fled persecution by local authorities. They arrived in the relatively free environment of Amsterdam in 1608. In his incendiary tract, the character of the beast, that's what he wrote, character of the beast, Smith explained that infant baptism was one of the most pernicious practices of false communions like the Church of England, which he considered the daughter of the great harlot the Roman Catholic Church. So there's separatism, and then there's John Smith, who says the Church of England is just the the stepchild of the Catholic Church, part of the beast in his theology. He said only Christian believers could receive true baptism, and only authentic Christian churches could offer true baptism. Infants were obviously too young to understand the meaning of baptism or to repent of their sins. Baptizing infants was, quote, the most unreasonable heresy of all anti-Christianism. For considering what baptism is, an infant is no more capable of baptism than in, than any unreasonable or insensible creature, like a dog or a snail. I added the, the animals there just for your for your help. For baptism is not washing with water, but it is the baptism of the Spirit, the confession of the mouth and the washing with water. Infant baptism is folly and nothing, he said. Smith had accepted the idea of believer's baptism, but how would he actually be baptized? What true church would he go find? Any guesses? Who would baptize John Smith if he's a separatist trying to start baptizing only believers? What did the Swiss do? What was their practice? There were some Swiss, such as Mennonites, which he eventually found friends with. His church was was actually meeting in a Mennonite church early on. The mainstream Calvinistic B- that was still becoming a thing. What, what and in the Holland, there, there, were, there were none. He's it. Any guesses? Besides Cal? I think Cal knows. What, who is it, Cal? What did he do? Himself. Baptizes himself. <laughs> drips water on himself. I don't recall. I want to say he immersed himself, but I could be wrong. Um, so this is, this is John Smith Puritans in Holland. They make a break. He begins a movement of baptizing believers, not infants, as a separatist who was kicked, pushed out, if you will, from England out into Holland. Uh, l- very long story short, those Puritans became <clears throat> the Puritans who moved to America, who came to Massachusetts Bay Colony and established Puritan churches here in America. A generation later, in 1638, we have our first Baptist church in America by Roger Williams in Independence, Rhode Island. Anybody ever been to that church? Raise your hand if you've ever been to Independence Baptist Church in Rhode Island, like on vacation recently. Anybody ever been there? Darren, Darren, you were just there, right? You were just at yeah. e- re- um, Independence. Or did we, did we cross history? No, I get, no that's it then. That's okay, I think was that done. was the one. Yeah, okay, you were there. I think you were there, Darren. I I there. <laughs> According to you. It was a different state. It was
1: kind of a quick vacation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're basically the size of counties up there once yeah. you get there, so it's, uh, it's hard yeah, to tell where you are. So I recommend yeah. going there. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like he had a blast. Uh, really memorable experience. Roger Williams uh, was also a lawyer. He was only the pastor at this little church for three months. Uh, and then he left because of persecution, went and founded uh, a new church, ended up getting out of the pastorate, was put in prison for starting this church, was kicked out of Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, because of his uh, beliefs. So Baptists from the beginning have been persecuted for believing we can go start our own churches and we can baptize whoever we want. And we do that as a local church. That'll get you kicked out. That'll get you put in prison. Uh, It got John Smith, uh, not John Smith, uh, John Hooper killed by Bloody Mary. So we begin to see what what Roger Williams was tapping into begin to work itself out in northeast America in the 1600s. So just a couple of examples, just a couple of snapshots of how people reading the Bible on their own began to desert even Puritanism that baptized babies and Puritanism that was not separatist. Puritanism that demanded, if you're going to be a member, if you're going to vote in city council, if you're going to vote in government elections, you're going to be a member of the local church or else you can't vote. There's a syncretism. Between government and the church. So a couple of examples. Uh, 1654, Harvard president Henry Dunster. Harvard President Henry Dunster becomes Baptist. The trouble started when Henry Dunster refused to have his children baptized, and he publicly announced that he no longer believed in infant baptism. Massachusetts authorities were alarmed, but they had to handle the case delicately, as you might with a Harvard president. Dunster could not be hastily tried or summarily whipped. It seemed to have been the option they preferred. (coughs) A group of Puritan ministers met with Dunster to persuade him to return to the traditional view of baptism. But Dunster made compelling arguments for believers' baptism. Quote All instituted gospel worship hath some expression, some express word of scripture, he said. But Pato baptism has none. He held his ground. Harvard removed him from presidency for this reason. 1654. 1665, Thomas Gould. Thomas Gould, a farmer and a wagon maker from Charlestown, South Carolina, began to have doubts about infant baptism. In May 1665, Gould and eight others were baptized as believers by immersion. They signed a church covenant declaring that, quote, "...the Church of Christ, commonly though falsely called Anabaptist, were gathered together and entered into fellowship and communion with each other, engaging to walk together in all the appointments of their Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, as far as he should be pleased to make known his mind and will unto them by his word and spirit." Several people who had already received believers' baptism in Baptist churches in England began to move from their cities to join Thomas Gould's church because of their rejection of infant baptism and their belief in believers' baptism. In the summer of 1674, Gould and his followers slipped into Boston and began meeting in a private home there. Gould led the congregation for one more year until his death on October 27, 1675. But the church carried on and grew, with about 80 people having been baptized into membership by 1680. They built a meeting house that opened in 1679. Officials tried repeatedly to stop their public meetings, on one occasion even nailing the door shut. But continuing pressure from London for religious toleration, broke Boston's resistance. And in 1681, the general court gave official approval for Baptists to meet publicly. Significant change for Baptists in America in late 1670s and 80s. We were allowed to meet publicly without fear someone was going to come lock the door. You could now baptize adults, reject infant baptism, make your own church apart from the government... Decide who your own members are in covenant together as a local church without fear of persecution in America in the 1680s. If you look in the right column on page 4, that has to do some part with what was going on in England at the same time. The Puritan movement in England, the Puritan movement at least to uh, reform the church in England, failed. Presbyterianism prevailed. that had as much to do not just with infant baptism but with concepts of church and state relationship with with government church power structures baptists began to form congregational churches and sought to unite confessions of faith together in england so you have for example 1644 the first london confession first baptist london confession 1644 Savoy in 1658 then in 1688 in england you get the Toleration Act by the government. So in 1688, churches, just like in America around the same time, now could meet freely without worrying about being persecuted by the government. 1689, the second London Confession uh, was written and ratified, and that would be the Statement of Faith for the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Charles Spurgeon would come be a pastor in the late 80s, and that is still their Statement of Faith today you go on uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle London, you look up their stuff, the Second London Confession from 1689 is still their statement of faith today. Actually, fascinating and quite rare. So while that was going on in England, and that freedom was being won, it began to pressure Puritan-led governments here in Massachusetts and beyond to allow that kind of freedom here in America as well. So we were kind of an earlier receiver of a freedom that they'd been fighting for for decades through through ups and downs of kings. Some kings were happy with Puritans. Some wanted them dead. So, Nathan? Yeah? um, When you talked about Presbyterianism prevailing in the Church of England, Mm -hmm. um, of course, that doesn't mean Presbyterianism as a denomination. It means something else. One of the things that mostly meant was that the king still had his hands in the church at the time. The king had, had, had power. See, over... At the beginning of Presbyterianism, the king would, would say who the bishops were going to be, but could also go so far as to appoint preachers in churches. And that had begun to erode from the bottom up. So that in the 1680s, now your Presbyterianism, your, your Anglican church, just has the king saying, okay, let's, let's basically uh, let, let's kind of meet in the middle. I will appoint the bishops, but the bishops can appoint the pastors. So the king still has his hand on the church, but there's the idea that we kind of get to choose our pastors on a lower level. That kind of power structure was what left Presbyterianism in more power in a place in government than the argument for infant baptism itself. That was actually predominant. All right, good question. So in 1740s, on page 4, we began to see Baptist statements of faith develop in America. So we're you know, about 200 years from John Hooper, but now in America, on the other side of freedom, on the other side of a lot of theological development and baptistic practices, we began to see Baptists grow exponentially in, uh, in New England. In 1740, churches got together and wrote the, ratified, you could say, the Philadelphia Baptist Association. And they had a statement of faith which was influential for multiple associations in New England for Baptist churches. So like we begin to see Baptist statements of faith in New England there on the right on page four, we begin to see those in America primarily in 1740 going forward. (coughs) Philadelphia Baptist Association, 1751, Charleston, South Carolina Baptist Association, Sandy Creek in 58, New England Association, 67, And then a a large one later, the New Hampshire Baptist Confession in 1833. All of these were almost entirely modeled after the (laughs) Philadelphia Baptist Association. There's some borrowed language from the 1689 Confession on the other side of the pond, but mostly the 1833 New Hampshire borrows language from the 1740 Philadelphia. So we're starting to see where our church history comes from. We're getting closer now to Millwood Baptist Church. Uh, Go to page five. This is some of the statement of faith from the Philadelphia Baptist Association in 1740. Churches, Baptist churches were growing exponentially, being planted exponentially, so they began to form associations together. Uh, They began to unify not like a Presbyterian model like John asked about in terms of who gets to rule over each other, but partnering together, saying we affirm these together and eventually we'll help plant churches together and send missionaries together. So look at that 1740 Philadelphia Baptist Association. Uh, I'll show you a, a book on the right there. It's called Polity by Mark Dever. Um, I don't know what to say about this book, um, You could definitely go to sleep quick if you read this at night. But here's what it is. It's just a collection of some of the most important statements of faith from the 1600s through the 1800s about the development of Baptist doctrine. So there's a few articles, a few essays at the front, but then it's just a collection of all those statements of faith. So you can just comb through those and go through, you know, look for baptism in each of those, and kind of see what were they saying about baptism at those times. Lucky for you, I know you were wondering, lucky for you, this book is now available as a free PDF online. Free PDF. You just go type Mark Dever, Polity, PDF in your search, and it will bring it right up. It's free. And the thing I actually love about it is you can download that PDF and you can uh, search it. So it's a wonderful resource. If you just want to word search, baptism, could do that, be helpful. Uh, There's a lot of things there. Let's look at some of the stuff that they say in the Philadelphia Baptist Association as this Baptistic doctrine is now beginning to crystallize into actual statements of faith shared by almost universally of Baptists in America at the time. Uh, They say in chapter 27, the church. There's a lot in the statement. We're obviously just looking for the meaning and practice of baptism uh, during their time. Uh, Chapter 27, The Church. I'm going to save my voice a little bit and ask you guys to read some. Somebody read that for us. Philadelphia Baptist Association, Chapter 27, The Church. I think that's actually Article 5. Go for it, Chris. All right. Do you begin to see anything crystallize from the history that we've discussed from John Hooper in 1540 through Holland into America? You see anything there that begins to put into a statement of faith? It's a select group of people. Okay. Where do you see that? What do you mean? <coughs> Mm-hmm. but it's not just the locality mm-hmm. and because you live in this area you go to that church and you're baptized in yeah America. yeah they also have a doctrine a teaching that they encoded when you have a church that's not required geographically to attend what do they say He commanded churches to walk together in particular societies or churches, that's local churches, for their mutual edification. They suggest that that God, that Christ has commanded Christians to be a part of a local church. That though we've gone away from the Presbyterian model of bishopry and geographic churches, you ought to be a member of a church. That was in their statement of faith. And another thing you start to see in these statements of faith that's, uh, unique to many statements is those verses at the end. You begin to see stuff like we have in our Baptist Faith and Message today, verses where they're saying, go look at this and see if that's not what we're saying. Yeah, Marilyn. That's what I was about to say. It, it appears they're putting the authority in God's Word, not in the church. 100%. 100%. Yep. All right. Uh, Chapter 27, number 6. Somebody read that one for us. Leanne, you got that one? Mm What would be the ordinances of the gospel that they're referring to? Baptism and the Lord's Supper? Yeah, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. I submit myself to baptism. I come and submit myself to the Lord's Supper. Submit myself to the Lord and to the church together in those. All right, in verse 7. Somebody read that for us. Any volunteer? To each of these right. churches, thus... I'll, I'll get you next. <clears throat> According to his mind, he has given all that power and authority, which is in This one's a little wordy, but this is getting at local church autonomy. The local church has the authority to look over the church together. You don't have to answer to your bishop. You don't have to answer to the head of the Church of England. You have the authority uh, to handle such matters in the local church together. Michaela, why don't you read number 12 for us? As all believers are bound to join themselves to particular church they have the opportunity to do so. so that all, um, so all that are admitted unto the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government, thereof, according to the rules. All right, so there's again their idea, bound to join themselves to particular uh, churches. They don't have in their mind that Christians ought to be just Christians and just kind of float around out there in the world. Uh, their understanding, their model was that you ought to be a part of a local church. All right, chapter thirty of baptism. Somebody read that one for us, chapter 30. Go ahead, Steve. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament or ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up unto God, through Jesus Christ to live and work and do so we see here the meaning of baptism. What is the first meaning of baptism? A sign of fellowship with the Lord. A unity with the Lord, we would say, with his death and his resurrection. You are now united to Christ. That's what baptism means. You're saved. You're new. Your sins are forgiven because you have believed on Jesus' death for your sins and believed that he raised from the dead. you're connected to him now spiritually speaking. That's what baptism symbolizes. Not just something that happened to you but your connection to Christ. Uh, Number two Luke McClendon, you with us man? Top of page six, you want to read number two? Alright, so we have an encoded statement here, something we've been seeing developing for a couple hundred years Only those who actually profess repentance towards God. An infant cannot do that. And we will not baptize an adult who does not do that either. So only a professing, repentant adult, not an infant, uh, would be someone that we actually baptize in that ordinance. Uh, Number three, Steve Palaka. You want to do that one for us? The outward element to be used in this ordinance is water. (coughs) wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All right, somebody read number four. Immersion or dipping (coughs) in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. All right, so we see here a practice. It means unity with Christ, therefore we practice you actually go under the water. Uh, We don't just drip some things, some drops of water on your head. We actually immerse you entirely in water to signify the immersion you've had spiritually in the Holy Spirit and into Christ's death and resurrection. All right, chapter 32 of the Lord's Supper. Somebody read that one for us. Greg, you got that one? Chapter 32? The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him the night wherein he was betrayed to be observed in his churches unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance and showing forth the sacrifice of himself in his death, confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits thereof, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in, and To all duties which they owe to him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other. All right. Observed in the church, perpetual remembrance of Christ himself, confirmation of faith of believers. What does it mean to take the Lord's supper? He needs to have a confirmation of the faith of the believer. We're giving that to you. You're enjoying that by partaking in the Lord's Supper. I haven't talked about this in a while, but Colette and I took the Lord's Supper at our wedding. I don't think I would do that again. Get married, that is. I'm happy to be, I'm happily married. But I would also, if I were to get married again, I would not take the Lord's Supper there together. Because it's a church ordinance. The church is there doing that. Um, I don't think anything happened to our marriage. We're we're married. We're we're whole. Pr- praise God. But the Lord's Supper happens in the church. You don't think you need to do that over? I don't need to do that over. No, one time is fine. Yeah. Did that up. You you say what again? No. I was going You're recording it. Okay. Yes, this is going online now. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah. Uh, I also have the power to edit later. So yeah. Um, you see this ordinance to be, and we see this language in the Baptist faith and message, a church ordinance where the church is in it and over it and about it. And that is particularly the local church and Baptist churches. We oversee the Lord's Supper at our church. We oversee baptism at our church. Now, 1740 may seem like a very long time ago for some of you. It is closer to some of your history than others, but it is a long way for us. But it actually is a pretty, a pretty predictable line. I think it's fair to say there's a line from the Baptist in 1740 to New Hampshire in 1833 to Millwood today. So look at a few things on page 6. That New Hampshire Confession in 1833 that came out of the Philadelphia Confession in 1740, that was the basis for the Southern Baptist Convention Statement of Faith in 1925. So our Statement of Faith, which was amended in 2000, first written in 1925, came from 1833 New Hampshire, which came from Philadelphia 1740. So doctrinally, there's our Statement of Faith history. What you see in our statement of faith goes back through the New Hampshire Confession back to Philadelphia in 1740. Also, the 1833 New Hampshire Confession was the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary founding statement of faith in 1908. Before we had the Baptist Faith and Message, they began, Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth began in 1908. And the declaration they asked professors to sign was the 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith. That's the Baptistic standard that united uh, what became Southern Baptist. (coughs) Next, Millwood roots. Millwood Baptist American roots. Where do we see our roots? Most likely, this is our history according to Hyde Park Baptist Church, We go back to the Charleston Baptist Association, which if you, you don't have to scroll, but if you go back to page four, you'll see that Charleston Baptist Association was founded in 1751 in close alignment and fellowship with the Philadelphia Convention in 1740. Paget's Creek Church, founded in 1784, was a member of the Charleston Baptist Association so it seems. I have contacted Paget's Creek Church more than one time over the years, including last week, and I cannot get any history that says they were absolutely a part of the Charleston Baptist Association, but they think that's the, that's the case. Because the Charleston Baptist Association in South Carolina eventually became the state convention of South Carolina, of which they were eventually a part of. Paget's Creek planted New Hope Baptist Church. If you come to our membership class, you'll hear more about Paget's Creek and New Hope. W.D. Beverly pastored New Hope in the 1860s. Where is New Hope? I want to say that was Union, South Carolina. Northwest, east of Greenville. Not to be confused with New Hope here in this area. Correct. So that would have been New Hope in South Carolina. After that, from New Hope, W.D. Beverly comes down. He's actually pastoring in Elgin, Texas, but then he's going back and forth on horse between Elgin and Austin to preach for a few saints gathered in Austin. And those saints in 1894 said, hey, would you please help us plant a church? And in in 1894, W.D. Beverly plants Hyde Park Baptist Church. Then in 1985, Hyde Park Baptist Church plants Millwood, Baptist Church with Will Davis as the first pastor uh, here. Go to page (coughs) 7. What are some uniting, uniting Baptistic practices on this side of the Reformation? Just a quick recap of the history of the meaning and practice of baptism in our American Baptist history. First one was religious liberty. Voluntarily church membership in autonomous churches. It wasn't just about baptism. It was about the right to do church how you wanted to do church. Way before Lincoln was fighting against slavery, there was John Quincy Adams who was fighting for what? Anybody remember the gag order? He was fighting for freedom of speech. He couldn't even talk about slavery on the Congress floor. So he had to fight for freedom of speech so that he could then talk about slavery, which led to Lincoln and uh, another movement later on. That That was the Baptist churches. They fought first not just for baptism of adults, but first for the right to baptize adults by having their own local churches. The necessity of church membership. We ought to be a part of a local church, that we are commanded to do that as Christians. Pursuit of a regenerate church membership, no more infant baptism. Best we can tell, if you're actually a member of the church, you are actually regenerate by the Holy Spirit. Baptism by immersion, the practice of membership and discipline, and the congregational oversight of membership, baptism, Lord's Supper. The congregational oversight, that is congregationalism, if you're looking for an ism, right? Congregations, not just the pastors, actually play a part in overseeing the local church. You see all those things in our Baptist faith and message statement of faith. So that is from the Reformation in 1540s, from John Hooper to Millwood Baptist Church. It's a flyover. It is a, a, a you know, a flying and glancing down at some of the peaks, but it shows the history of how we got to have statements of faith and practices and meanings for baptism like we have today. Where did it come from? How did we get here? It's a little picture. Let's pray, we'll come back next week.